Hello, everyone, and welcome to Topics in Faith, part of the In Faith series of podcasts. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're looking at God's desires throughout Scripture. We've got 39 passages to look at, so let's get to it. So, if you've been in church for any length of time, um, you've probably heard that we should desire the things that God desires. I forget, there's probably a quote out there from someone famous who says something along those lines. I forget who it was, because I feel like that's probably what triggered my interest in looking at this topic. I believe it was, it was another one that was in church, and the pastor mentioned something about you know what, what it is that God desires. And I suddenly wondered what it would look like to go through Scripture and look at all the times that it says either God is is telling his people, this is what I desire, or something along those lines. And so I did it, and it took a long time <laughs> to write this out, to, to find all the scriptures, again, using blueletterbible.org to do it. It's another great example of going deep when you're trying to search through scripture for something that sometimes the first search you do is not going to be the best one because if you only look up the English word desire, depending on the translation, you will not necessarily get that many scriptures. So we're going to go ahead and look at those first, though, to see what happens. So if you search only for the word desire as it relates to God desiring something, here's what we've got in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles chapter 9, verse 8 says, Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on his throne as king to rule for the Lord your God because of the love of your God for Israel and his desire to uphold them forever. He has made you king over them to maintain justice and righteousness. I mean, you remember that Israel is still God's chosen people whom he desires to uphold forever. That did not go away with Christ because of their rejection the word of God is preached to the Gentiles. We can read that in Acts, and Paul talks about it as well in one of his letters. I forget which one right now, but they are still the chosen people. And when you and I become saved, if we are not Jews, then we become his chosen people by being grafted into, into the tree, as it were, of the Israelites and of the Jews. And so then, when that happens, then it is his desire to uphold you forever. Psalm 40, verse 6 Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Here we see God's desire in the negative, that he does not desire burnt offerings or sacrifice, but rather our love of him. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 24. What the wicked dread will overtake them, what the righteous desire will be granted. And Jesus affirms this in Mark 11 verse 24. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. In the King James, it says, whatever you desire in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And so again, if we think of the righteous person accurately reflecting God, then we see that our desires will match up with his. That's kind of where this whole topic started off, that when our desires align, then we get everything we ask for in prayer. Proverbs 11.23, the desire of the righteous ends only in good but the hope of the wicked only in wrath. Kind of similar to what we just read. In Song of Solomon 7 verse 10, it says, I belong to my husband and his desire is for me. Now remember that Paul talks about the marriage between a man and wife is a reflection of Christ in the church. And so the church belongs to Christ. 
and Christ's desire is for us. We'll see this again later in the other verses we read. Isaiah 55 verse 11 says, So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. His desires, God's desires then, are accomplished through his word. When he speaks to us through scripture, that word or conviction or guidance is his desire then. And Hosea 6 verse 6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice and acknowledgement of God, rather than burnt offerings. As we mentioned, if you only look for the English word desire, depending on the translation, it actually appears almost not at all in the New Testament, especially in relation to God. There are many things that people desire that Paul might desire, but as far as God, as it saying God himself desires something, again, depending on the translation, it's almost never in there. But what we can do is go to Hosea 6, 6, that says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings and look at the original Hebrew word for desire and see how many times that word appears and we get a lot in the Old Testament. So again, since you're looking at the Hebrew, you're only going to see results from the Old Testament for the word desire. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 25 says, If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? This is Eli was saying this to his sons to rebuke them for the sins that they were doing. So he is, he is saying to them, if one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? And the sons, however, his sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. This is the same word as God saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It was the Lord's desire to put them to death. Now, how can God desire someone's death? This is an interesting one for me because I feel like there's another contradiction that can come up from those who do not study scripture very well or who are opposed to it, especially in some way, that they first ask how a good God can allow so much evil in the world, but then they turn around and question how can a good God desire punishment? Well, evil is a bad thing. And Eli's sons, especially because they were supposed to be representatives of God, their evil was an even worse stench because it not only reflected their evil natures, but could cause people to think that God himself was evil. And this is why it was such a despicable thing what they were doing that their father tried to rebuke them for, but they did not listen because it was too late. Well, again, we'll kind of come back to this uh, idea later on in this episode. Second Samuel 22 verse 20 says, he brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And that word delighted, we'll see, we'll see too when we go look at the, the Greek word in the New Testament, this desire and delight kind of has the same, couple different meanings from the same, the same root word. And by the way, this passage in 2 Samuel 22 is also found in Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is kind of in both places. And this is an awesome thing because part of God's desire is for you. It says, he rescued me because he delighted in me or he desired me. Psalm 22, verse 8 says, He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him or since he desires him. Does this sound familiar? This quote, He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It should. Those walking by Jesus on the cross ask these same questions. If we look at Matthew 27, verse 43, they said, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. David speaking prophetically in this case of the psalm. 
Psalm 51, verse 6, Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. And then verse 19 says, Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. A different translation of the verse 6 is, rather than you desired faithfulness even in the womb, you could also translate that as desiring faithfulness in the inward parts. So in faithfulness to the very core of your being, not just in body, not just because you are compelled to, but because you actually want to remain faithful. And he will teach wisdom in secret. So the idea could be from that verse 6 is that so in faithfulness and wisdom are internalized, then the sacrifices we offer will be acceptable. This kind of an idea, similar idea to what we talked about last time or you know a couple times ago, that doing good is not good in and of itself unless you do it in obedience to God. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him or he does whatever he desires. And further ahead, Psalm 135 verse 6 says, The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. From both of these verses, we get this idea that God's desires will be manifest. And he does not do that which displeases him. God is all powerful. He can do anything he wants to. The one thing he cannot do is anything against his nature. So if there's anything that would displease him, he cannot do it. People can, he cannot. But then also his desires will be manifest. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And whatever it is he does desire will manifest in some way. He does whatever pleases him. Psalm 147 verse 10 says, His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. Again, we see this then in the negative. He does not desire, his pleasure is not in, the strength of the horse or self-sufficiency. Time and time again, when bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, then into the promised land, then against Jericho, later in Judges when he led Gideon out, when David killed Goliath, when Jehoshaphat went against the Moabites and the Ammonites, the battle was God's to win, and he did it in such a way that there was no option but to realize he did it. Not because he's an egomaniac, but because he knows how easy it is for pride to rise up, for us to think that we did it under our own power and to turn away from him and reject our relationship with him because we feel like we did it ourselves, we are self-sufficient, and we do not need God. Isaiah 42 verse 21, It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious. This passage goes on to note how despite this, despite how much it pleased the Lord, that God's chosen people still disobeyed that law. So his desire was to leave us with no excuse. He made himself as evident as he could, gave us an unmistakable law, and yet we still turn away. Isaiah 53 verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. One of the things God desired was to beat and kill his own son for our sake. He knew that there was no other way, no way for us to pay for our own sins, but he so desired our forgiveness and our relationship with him that he further desired Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion. Jeremiah 9 verse 24, But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord, or in these I have my desire. It's pretty clear. He desires kindness, justice, and righteousness. If you want to desire what God desires, desire kindness, justice, and righteousness. Ezekiel 18, verses 23 and 32. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? 
32. For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Here again, his desire is not to punish us for our sins. The nature of his holiness required it. He offers a way out through the sacrifice of Jesus, but we have to take it. He does not reject us, but we reject him, reject the way he provided. This may seem in contradiction to the earlier passage of Eli's sons that he desired to kill them. But again, and we'll see this one more time, at least further along, that there comes a point of kind of no return, where mostly in the Old Testament, they had gotten to a point where it was his desire to kill them because he needed to make the example at that time for the sake of his law to kill these wicked priests who were profaning his name and his practices and the law that he had set up at that time to bring people closer to him. But in general, he does not desire to kill anyone. He does not delight in it. But sometimes things that we delight in, we're not allowed to do. And we'll see that also further on. Let's keep going. Hosea 6.6, 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. That's what we talked about before. That without faith, it is impossible to please God because we must acknowledge he exists. Burn all the offerings you want. Do all the good, quote unquote, you want to. But his desire is for mercy and acknowledging him more than anything else we can do. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Just to drive the point home, he desires and delights in showing mercy, and he will take any opportunity he can to show that mercy. And finally, in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? We do no one any favors by indicating God is pleased with those who do evil. He loves all of us. Similarly, I love my son no matter what, but I am not always pleased with him. And many times I let him choose not to listen after I've told him what his actions may cause, and then he usually learns. Sometimes I learn, usually he does. But that is a merely human relationship, and there the analogy kind of ends. I don't know everything perfectly, and I cannot empower him to obey me or empower him to choose rightly and wisely in every circumstance. Only a perfect and perfectly loving God can do that. Now, when we get to the New Testament, what we can do is we find where Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6 6 and look at the word he used in translating that verse into the Greek, or he would have said it in Aramaic, I believe, but those who wrote it down wrote it in Greek. And so we can use that word, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, whatever the Greek word they use there is the word thilo or desire from Matthew 9.13 is where Jesus quotes that. And it means this. It's very, very interesting. It can mean to will, to have in mind, or to intend. It can mean to be resolved or determined, or to purpose a thing, to desire or wish a thing, to love, to like to do a thing, be fond of doing, to take delight in and have pleasure. So when we talk about this is something God desires, it could mean it is something that he is resolved or determined to do because it is his desire. It can mean he loves to do it. He can like to do a thing or be fond of doing this thing that is his desire. And he can take delight and have pleasure in doing this desire. We'll see this as we go through a couple of these verses. It's fascinating how this can work itself out. Matthew 8 verse 3, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Think of the other definitions we just gave. Jesus reached out saying, I am resolved 
be clean. I am determined. I desire. I love to do this. I take delight or pleasure in this. Be clean. Matthew 15, verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people, for they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. Again, in the negative, he does not desire us to go away hungry. It is not God's will that we go away hungry, or his desire. Remember, James tells us if we ask for wisdom, God gives generously to all who ask him. And Paul asks, he who did not withhold his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? But if you go to God, neither hungry nor thirsty, what will he have to give you? Matthew 23, verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. This is one of my favorite go-to verses when people ask about the supposedly wrathful God of the Old Testament. Rather, he longs, he desires for us to come under the shelter of his wing, but we are not willing. Matthew 26, verse 39 says, Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The same Greek word in both places. Yet not as I desire, but as you desire. But we know from Isaiah, and Jesus would have known this too, that what was about to happen was indeed God's desire. So why pray it? We've touched on this throughout this episode, that we need to go to God with our weakness in order for him to strengthen us. As long as we claim self-sufficiency, there is no room for God to work. But be honest about it. Do you truly, deep down, know you can't? Or do you only say it to try to appear humble? Only you and God know it. Mark 6 verse 48 says he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. Interesting that the original Greek says he desired, or at least intended, had in mind, was willed to, pass them by. We looked at this in a previous episode about why Jesus walked on the water. We could probably spend an entire episode, though, on why Jesus would have intended to pass them by, even though they were struggling. We're not going to be able to get into it today. But interesting to note that that verse, that is the word, same word used there. Luke chapter 9, verse 54, when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Is it your will? Do you desire this? Jesus said no. That was not his desire at all. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. This fire that he speaks of would cause the division among families on account of him. It was a fire meant to begin burning the chaff so the true seed could be harvested and the final days be ushered in. When people ask how a loving God can let certain things happen, I think part of the response must include that Jesus seems to want everything to end. How I wish the fire were already kindled, and yet God also desires all to be saved. We'll see this later. And so evil must be allowed to continue in order to also allow salvation to continue. John chapter 3 verse 8 says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Another verse that we might be able to spend all day on, If we are truly attuned to the Spirit to obey Him, we should resemble the wind in some ways, blowing where He, the Spirit, pleases. This is part of the freedom we spoke of a few weeks ago, a freedom that whatever God calls us to do, we do, no matter how impossible the world might think it is. John chapter 5, verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. 
We're going to get into this a little bit in a near future episode because we've already said and we'll see again that God desires all to be saved. So how can Jesus be pleased or unpleased to give life to someone? It has to do with general will and specific will and how we respond to God's desire. But know that salvation is not given begrudgingly. He gives it to whom he is pleased to give it. John chapter 7 verse 1 says, After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. Sometimes martyrdom is called for, but sometimes it's not. We are not called to die on every hill. Sometimes we need to avoid the battle because it's not our time to die. There are numerous times where the Gospels mention that it was not yet Jesus' time, and so he escaped the crowds. And when was his time? In John 12, some Greeks came to see Jesus, but were never given entrance, that we're told. Instead, when Jesus is informed that they have come to see him, he replies, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Why? Because now the word of him would finally go beyond Israel and to the whole world. John chapter 17, verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Don't overlook the importance of this simple verse. Without his will for us to be with him, the rest of God's actions throughout history goes away, and we're left to our own devices. The reason he makes himself known to us, the reason he makes a way for salvation, is because he wants us to be where he is. Romans chapter 9, verses 18 and 22. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. 22 says, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? Choosing here in verse 22 could also be translated as willing or desiring. This is another one of those possibly complicated passages we've looked at before, where we have a God who earnestly desires to punish sin. But this also talks about someone like Pharaoh, who God raised into his place of rulership in order to show the Egyptians and the Israelites his total sovereignty. For without the example of God's power over sin and sinful people, we might think it's all up to us. But it also speaks to Judas Iscariot, who is allowed to carry the purse even though it was known he was a thief. Yet he had every opportunity that the rest of the disciples did to realize who the Messiah truly was and to turn from his wicked ways. And when he didn't, his heart became harder and harder until he betrayed the Son of Man for money. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18, But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Your place and role in the church body is willed, desired, loved, delighted in, and God is fond of placing us in such unique positions, of giving us a particular role to play. It is not accidental or arbitrary, but carefully thought out. 1 Corinthians 15, 38 says, But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Here, Paul is talking about the seeds, perhaps of wheat or of something else, as an analogy of our physical versus our spiritual bodies. But I don't want us to use this to denigrate the purpose with which God assigns our roles in the church. It can be easy to shrug it off and say, my role is no more important to God than whatever form he gave to wheat. Instead, think that the form of wheat is just as well thought out as my critical role in the church. God did not just create the earth by happenstance, by the negligent wave of his hand and a few words idly spoken. All life on earth is beautiful and complex and important, whether that life manifests in the billions of grains of wheat or in the one and only you. Colossians chapter 1 verse 27 says, 
to them, that is the Lord's people, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It may seem like chosen is such an innocuous word. Ah yes, God has chosen us. No, God has desired, has resolved, has willed, delighted in, is fond of making us into a people who can show the Gentiles, that is non-believers, the mystery of Christ in us and the hope of glory. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. Here's our critical verse. God, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. First, it is because of this desire that he asks us to pray for everyone, including those in authority, that we may live quiet and peaceable lives. He desires, resolves, wills, delights in, and is fond of saving everyone, but not everyone will be. Not because of his will, but because of ours. This stands against the idea of predestination, meaning that whether or not you will be saved is not up to you, that you can somehow be saved against your will or destroyed against your will. But didn't we just read that he has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whom he wills? But in any examples I've found, the person hardened themselves first. And he also bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. Why would he do that? In every example I've found, he delays his wrath in order to give everyone a chance to repent and be saved. Again, it's a complicated and complex idea that we don't have the time to to delve into here. The idea of predestination. And can we do anything except harden ourselves? Is it possible for us without God's will first to soften our hearts toward him? Yes and no. Again, we don't have really time today, so look forward to that in a future episode. James 4 verse 15 says, Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now that we've gone through 37 passages of what God desires, do you think it will be easier to determine what his specific will for you might be for the next year? I hope it will be, but only you know your calling and gifts and the choices in front of you. On to our last verse, and it's a doozy. 1 Peter 3, verse 17. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Is the goal of your choice, let's say you're facing a choice for what to do for the next month, the next year, whatever it is, is the goal of your choosing to reduce your own suffering? Are you hoping that life will be easier or more enjoyable? Or do you hope to make the decision to do what is right and to do what God desires? They might be different. In these 39 passages, we didn't see a lot of it is God's desire for you to be happy. It is good to be happy, but it's good to be happy because you're doing what it is God would have you do, not because your life is easy, because you have everything you want here on earth. Again, it could be. You might get your wildest dream. Not saying it's not, but the goal when you're trying to make this choice, if you're praying to God for wisdom, it should be what is the right thing to do? What is it that God desires of me in this moment or in this next time and do that? Whether it's good, whether it will reduce your own suffering or it might make it worse. Next week, we're taking our first look at the idea of fruitfulness in the Christian life. Should be another good one. I hope you'll join me. Until then, keep the faith and keep it fresh.